Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The race is on, and as the chasing pack jostles for position behind Red Bull, F1's other works team Alpine continues to go nowhere fast in F1 with just a couple of podium finishes to show for 2023. But can this story team finally start to make good on its potential, and why hasn't it made the progress expected? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer the big questions about Team Enstone are Matt Beer and special guest Damien Smith. Well, Matt, we'll come to you first. Welcome back to the F1 pod. Regular listeners to Bring Back V10s and our MotoG podcast know you well, of course, so how's life? Uh, just a little bit shell shocked because I always forget I've done so few F1 podcasts and your opening volume for the intro, Ed, always catches me out without fail. I'm used to Glenn's volume on Bring Back V10s on my own on, on the MotoGP podcast. So at the moment, I've got a little bit of a tinnitus coming on. But no, other than that, really good. And thank you for having me for one of my rare... I tend to get the midfield topics, so I feel very at home with what we're talking about this week. Well, although the, the era we'll be talking about this team uh regarding is is a bit when it's a bit more front running than uh, than what it is now yeah exactly well that's uh one of the reasons for this podcast as will become clear in a moment because joining us for the first time on the race f1 podcast is damien smith and for those who don't know him he has a long and illustrious career as a motorsport journalist which includes stints as editor-in-chief of autosport and editor of motorsport magazine now he's an author as well so we'll come on to the book in a moment for you to do some shameless promotion but perhaps you can tell us what you're up to at the moment damien well, yes, thanks, Ed, and thank you for having me, and good to see you as well, Matt. Um, yes, I'm these days I've been freelance for the last four years, uh, still working very closely with motorsport. I do a lot of consultancy work, writing features and commissioning stuff for them. Uh, I've got a weekly column in Autocar on all sorts of racing matters um, and other 
bits and pieces, including uh, including this book. Ah, the book. Yes, it's funny you should mention that because that gives us the perfect opportunity to uh, to do some plugging for you. But before we do that, I should point out we had a podcast last week with myself, Glenn Freeman, and Lawrence Barreto, which I described as getting the band back together from the Autosport days. But this is another iteration of that band. This one goes back a bit further. Uh, the, yeah. the three of us, just over two decades, which is alarming. It is, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. It's a long old time, but um, a little bit of water has passed under the bridge since we first met, Ed. Exactly. A time long before podcasts. That's yeah. uh, that's just made me realise it's 25 years since uh, Damien first sent me to Anglesey for my first <laughs> national report covering Rallycross when I was 17. So, uh, Where were you that, living then, Matt? How far did I send you to travel? Dorset. So I'll oh. Google Maps that in a second, but it was it was a hefty one in my little uh, 1983 Ford Fiesta Mark one. But it, oh. it made it there and back, and I, I still seem to have a career in the industry now. So yeah, it's good good shout, turned out. I'm really sorry. Simon Strang <laughs> used to send me to Pembrey from Sussex. So I, I used to have a similar, yeah. similar sort of trek in a, in a little X-Reg mini metro. So um, yes, I'm sorry I, I took it on and did the same to you. <laughs> I like Anglesey. It's, it's fine. It's a lush it's a little circuit, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's always a great thing when you have someone young and enthusiastic, you can send them to somewhere <laughs> far flung that nobody else wants to go. But yeah, it does uh, <laughs> go back quite a, a long way. So yeah, good to have uh, have this trio together. So Damien, as you keep going on about your book, Benetton Rebels of Formula One has just been released, available from Evro Publishing and other places where you might order books from. And Benetton, of course, is the team now known as Alpine. But the scope of the book is a little more 20th century than that isn't it yeah one of the reasons for doing this book was i you know there have been other benetton books but not many and i didn't feel one that had really gone into the depths of where this team came from because obviously this team is is one of those uh a number of teams on the grid with a storied history that uh, a family tree that goes back a long way and obviously it goes back to the days of tolman uh and the late 70s and then first f1 season in 81 so um, I wanted to tell the full story about where this team came from, but also, uh, and crucially, the Benetton family and how a company that made woolly jumpers and colourful T-shirts ended up becoming the owner of an F1 team and winning two world championships with Michael Schumacher. I felt that was a, an important part of the story. So it's kind of a, um, a story in two parts in a way. It's the, you know, an engineering story about a team based in the heart of England, um, but also an Italian story, uh, very much so as well. Yeah, and it is interesting because obviously this is a team that is Alpine now and it's really ebbed and flowed over the years, which makes it such a fascinating subject and your book covers the the rise, if you like. But Matt, it's a, it's a big deal, Benetton, isn't it? Obviously, with your Bring Back V10s hat on, it's a really exciting story to see the rise of that upstart team and then it winning races and the championship with Schumacher. Yeah, absolutely. I realised when preparing for this podcast how much I miss Benetton the Benetton of those of that era, as a, as a as a concept of a team, almost like Damien said, the the root of that team and the reputation it had and the atmosphere around it and the people it gathered to for that to be the team that interrupted this McLaren and, and Williams endless domination of Formula One was actually a really fun story, one yeah, full of controversy, but that kind of made it more more fun in a way. I, I didn't have a lot of time for Flavio Briatore's attitude to the world at that point, and I still don't now. But there's there's still something really exciting and spicy about the way that team rose, the drivers it brought through. I, I had so much, looking back, I got so much fondness for some of the things that Benetton almost pioneered, you know, that what 
Ross Braun and Michael Schumacher did together, setting a template for what Ferrari would do later, but almost with a bit more charm to it because it was an upstart team doing that rather than a, an absolute F1 legend. So, yeah, I, I, miss, I, I really miss Benetton. In, in a way, you would, it's kind of... Red Bull comes from a similar route, a company that you wouldn't expect to be involved in motorsport, making something really special happen from a UK base. But Red Bull's got a little bit too good now in you know, all these periods of domination, Benetton never really had that. Its, it's period of domination was very short-lived. And for the second year of its of its double championships, it didn't even have the best car. So Red Bull's not quite got that little sort of roguish charm that, that Benetton had for me. I think that the, the uh, title of the book, Rebels of Formula One, works really well. Yeah, it was actually one of the themes that came out of um, uh, do, while I was doing the book. It wasn't the reason I did it, but it, one of the, the themes that came out was this Red Bull link, actually, this parallel to Red Bull, and actually, they you know they see themselves as a bit of a precursor in a way to what Red Bull did um, uh, from the well, uh, you know, fr- fr- from taking over Jaguar. That um, they weren't an obvious fit with Formula One as a company. Uh, in fact, they had no relevance at all and no real passion for the sport. And it was almost by chance that uh, Benetton ended up becoming first a sponsor and then an, an owner. And um, it's it's a it's an interesting um, parallel all these years later to see what Red Bull have done and have taken it on much further. And as you say, they've had a much longer um, period of domination. Um, and Benetton, the, 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 the idea of the rebels really is that they, they had no right to beat Williams and McLaren, apparently. Um, and and they, they felt that uh, insecurity, if you like, I think, during the, their, their rise. Um, but it all came together, as you say, with Michael Schumacher and Ross Braun and Pat Simmons um, and that, that sort of early super team. Um, and, and of course, Rory Byrne. Rory Byrne is the central figure in my book, really, because um, everyone who worked with him loved him and absolutely uh, rated him highly, even when he was getting it wrong in the early days of Tolman, when the Tolmans weren't very good and when they were Benettons were very unreliable in the, in the mid to late 80s. Uh, everyone still loved him. Uh, so there's a lot of big characters in this book. As you say, Flavio, uh, not everyone's cup of tea. But again, the people who worked with him really interesting perspective on him because, um, you know, Pat Simmons says the first time he met him was Brazil in 89. And the guy was suddenly, his, you know, this, this, he turned up and he, he, uh, he had a, a little area of the, uh, of the engineers and their hospitality. And he brought someone in with him and the person said, oh, are we, are we interrupting? And Flavio said, oh, don't worry, they're just engineers. And Pat said, oh, I'm not sure about this guy. I'm going to have trouble. But actually, of course, they, they got on very well and, um, People said that Flavio allowed them to get on with their jobs and uh, uh, and uh, was actually a really good boss. Uh, didn't end too well, obviously, back in, you know, in the Renault era with the, 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 the Crashgate saga, which is a shadow that covers that always covers this team. But um, yeah, it was it was a great era, and I really enjoyed getting stuck into uh, those Benetton years. Yeah, there's so many great names who crop up in the book who people will know. Even today, they're talked about, even if they're not on active duty. But even someone like Rory Byrne has still got his Ferrari connection. He's got an office at Maranello still. So uh, every now and again, his name flares up as someone who's thinking a bit about Formula One. So he does have a bit of a contribution there. But it's it's interesting, Matt, because it is the same team, isn't it? And obviously, we tend to talk about Team Enstone to group together these many identities. So... I always expect this team to kind of rise when it has the backing behind it because that's what we've always seen. So I guess that's the interesting thing, how much of that old Benetton-Tolman spirit is is still there and whether it's the same team. Because even amongst all the, the second coming of Renault disappointment, it is, isn't it? It is, although I feel I feel less like that now than ever, in a way, in the last few months, 
possibly. All the way, th- you're absolutely right. This is a real chameleon of a team through all its different identities. And when it rose again as Renault for its second batch of titles with Fernando Alonso, it had that same knocking a big team off the off the off the top of its perch, you know, getting in among the establishment kind of atmosphere to it. Even even around the kind of crash gate era, I I still will always want to shout about the fact that Alonso won the very next race at Fuji, absolutely fair and square, in at a time when really that team should not have been beating what McLaren and Ferrari were doing. You know, beyond that. I would have loved to see what would have carried on with Robert Kubica if he hadn't got injured. Even in the Lotus days, the fact that this team was finding ways to nearly win races with Kimi Raikkonen, Romain Grosjean, and a car—it was mostly like not eating its tires, wasn't it? That was a key to that to that set of cars with Lotus. That being able to pull off strategies that no one else could. It always had this sort of. As soon as this team gets a sniff of an opportunity, it will find a way to make it happen. And that's a bit that I just don't feel like I've seen in this era of this team. And now with the kind of recent purge of people there and how it's kind of changing character again a little bit as LP, I do feel like it's further further away than I've ever known it from that kind of 90s Benetton spirit. And that's that's a real shame. And obviously the departure of Alan Permain recently, who joined the team in 1989, I think it was. Obviously, Damien, he crops up in the book as well. He's a significant figure there. And does it feel a bit like that to you, that it's, it's a team that's not quite what it once was in in that way. I'm not talking in terms of achievement, but has there been a bit of discontinuity, do you feel? Yeah, well, uh, Pemain's an interesting one because um, when I went to press on the book in the spring, it changes how quickly Formula One moves on, uh, I wrote that, you know, Pemain was still at Alpine and, of course, he went in August. So by the time the Yeah, that, that particular out, line did stick out. And I yes. thought, oh, you've been <laughs> stitched up by, uh, by yes. events there. Yes, I'm already out of date before I've even got on sale, which is great, you know. Um, but, yeah, I think... The interesting thing about this team is the core of the team, um, you know, it's a lot of the people who were at Benetton uh, are still there now. You know, Paul, Paul Seabee, the, the mechanic who was caught on fire in that famous photo um, with, with the Jos Verstappen pit fire at Hockenheim in 94, he's still working there. Um, and I, I emailed him the other day on an Al- Alpine uh, Renault email address to, to ask him a question. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a core of the team that hasn't changed. And the essence of the team, the thing that came out in the, in the book, the people who lived through the Benetton and Renault years, uh, they said it didn't change dramatically. What changed in the Renault era was uh, the budget went up and they suddenly had the resources they needed to have that amazing period of 2005, 2006 with the, the two Alonso titles. But it wasn't essentially the same team. And I don't think that's changed dramatically. But obviously... Uh, Formula One has changed and the ownership, the Renault, I have a problem with the way Renault are running it. And Renault's changed. I think Renault's not the same company it was when it bought Benetton in 2000. And uh, certainly not the same company it was in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the mid and early 80s. So I think, um, you know, I'm surprised in a way they haven't had more success. And on, on the other hand, maybe I'm not quite so surprised as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll interrogate their current situation uh, in a moment, but I'd certainly recommend the book. It is available now. As I say, Evro Publishing, you can get it from or various other places, and uh, it's uh, it's well worth having. And ultimately, uh, you're not going to become a millionaire off uh, off selling books, but it's it's a great book to exist because it tells the story of an important team. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. 
Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Well, let's get on to the team currently now, Damien. The first word of the book is unconventional, which is Pat Simmons uh, does the forward, and that's the first word. It's, in fact, the first sentence. So he describes the team, and Benetton, broadly, I think he's, he's using it to describe, but it does apply to Team Enstone, I think. And are you surprised to see the team in its current form make so little progress? Because it's approaching the end of its eighth season since Renault reacquired the team ahead of 2016, and it felt like it was just a matter of time before they'd get somewhere. and they got somewhere for a couple of years and then they've just bounced around in that same place. Yeah, they were making really good progress, weren't they? And obviously they've had that one um, fortuitous win with with Esteban Ocon. Um, I thought they'd do better than this. I mean, the, the hybrid era obviously has all been about Mercedes and now about Red Bull and breaking into that club was always going to be difficult. So maybe I, I wasn't expecting them to win world championships, but I, I certainly thought they'd be better than this. And it is... I think it's it's just a general disappointment that this team is is almost forgettable at the moment. Um, you can almost not notice uh, that they're there, and that's a real shame. Particularly because you know Renault have been you know they they pogoed in and out of Formula One over the years, but they they've been such a great supporter of Formula One really, and and, and they brought so much to Formula One over the decades. Um, and this this era is. Just such a disappointment, isn't it? Yeah, they've really struggled to get anywhere. They originally had that five-year plan, and we've joked about this on the podcast before. There's always a, an X number of years or X number of races plan that happens, and they get part way along it, and then they say, oh, actually, no, we'll have a new plan that extends the horizon <laughs> ever further. They have said they want to put a stop to those uh, particular plans now, which is something. But, Matt, it's almost at the point now where those original expectations that we have of Team Endstone as a whole because it is a team that rises and falls, and this should be a rise. I don't know about you, but I've almost lost faith in the fact that, well, even though there are plenty of very, very good people, it's not for want of talent on the design side, it's just something's just not working. Yeah, I've now got zero expectation that this team is going to win more races or be a force at the front until something, probably the ownership, changes. And like you said, that's not any offence meant to anyone who's working there, because I don't think that's the problem. But in this era of Renault slash Alpine ownership, it's... Every time this team has looked like getting somewhere, it's then plateaued or stepped backwards. Last season, you know, the main reason you looked at that team in the middle of last season was the whole shambles over Oscar Piastri and Alonso leaving abruptly and stuff. But amid all that, actually, it was making progress on track around the same time. The the early season reliability problems were being conquered. They couldn't fully fix that, but they were getting performance out of the car. Their development rate last season was actually excellent. And if you could overlook the amount of um, grumpy Alonso radio traffic, although that was quite amusing in itself, and his fall out with Ocon, that that team was stepping forward. And then to get into the 2023 season and just go absolutely nowhere, it's not actually a surprise because it's it's too typical of Renault in, in this era. And like, like you say, Damien, it is now a forgettable team. If you're making, when you're trying to run through the list of 10 teams for some kind of admin task at work, it's along with Alfa Romeo, the one I'm least likely to forget in the middle of the pack. And 
last weekend when it dropped out in Q2 at Suzuka, all through practice, it looked like a Q2 exit team. At best, it looked like a lower points finish team. Pierre Gasly having a massive rant about a weird team orders fallout was, that's a kind of, that, something like that has to happen. Some kind of shambles or argument to make Alpine feel newsworthy these days. Yeah, I, I, it feels to me, you, you know, you mentioned this, uh, no disrespect to the people working there. And I think that's absolutely right. It's not about the people working there, I feel. It's, um, it has a, there are lots of reminders of the Jaguar and Toyota days. In, um, yes. You know, where, where the, the corporate mentality of this team is kind of sucking the life out of it, I think. And, they're, and they're, they're just getting it wrong. And we've had so much management upheaval at this team, uh, certainly in the past, well, uh, 18 months or so. It, it just, um, it feels like they should just give the keys to uh, the people who know what they're doing, let them do their job, give them the resources they need, and uh, and just be quiet for a while. And, uh, you know, I think they would, make, they would make more progress that way. As you say, last year in development, they were getting there. So uh, there's not all that much wrong, in a way. Um, yeah, would you agree with that, Ed? Is that, is that how you see it? Yeah, it's not a million miles off being where it needs to be. No, it is a good team. You don't produce a car of that pace without being very good at what you do. It's just that in this, you have to be extremely good and everything has to be maximised. But there's an interesting point there about the the leadership. Certainly, they need Renault to let them get on with a job in hand. That's a very, very important thing. And when they had the uh, the ousting of Otmar Safnauer, who was team principal, one of the things I thought, I think I said it on the podcast, was that they actually need a Flavio Briatore-type team boss in that someone who can keep the Renault side at bay, who can maybe do some extra commercial value for the team just to get make sure they're absolutely maximising everything they've got in terms of budget and also their, their CapEx spending to make sure they're upgrading, because obviously that was something Flavio was very, very good at, and then let that team operate. Do you think a, a character like that, perhaps without some of the negatives that people will be listening to this thinking, ah, oh, but what about Singapore, etc., quite legitimately, but someone of that sort of style and approach? I really do. I really do. I agree with you completely. I'm not quite sure who that person would be, by the way. Um, there's not an ov- obvious candidate who stands out other than poaching someone from another team who's already doing a good job. But Well, and of course, if we were having this podcast... 30 years ago or whatever, we wouldn't be mentioning the name Flavio Briatore because he wouldn't even be close to being no. on the radar because he was busy selling probably too many Benetton franchises in the US or whatever it was he was doing. Yes. Before. But the, the interesting thing um, from the, the, the book work that I did was um, uh, I talked to Tim, Tim Wright and Bob Bell, who were engineers who crossed over the Benetton to Renault eras. And anyway, Bob Bell had a lot of time for Flav and said that one of the key things he did was he was in charge of both Enstone and Veery. You know, and he said he integrated. They were an integrated company long before, um, you know, uh, what Christian Horner is trying to do at Red Bull now on the on the, on the Milton Keynes campus. The engine side and the chassis side were fully integrated during that Renault era, and that was because there was one guy in charge. Whether you respect and like the guy from the outside is is beside the point. Those inside the team uh, respected Flav, and they recognised his authority. And Renault just allowed him to run it as it needed to be fit. And he, the crucial thing was, he employed the right people in the right roles to get the job done. You know, he wasn't an engineer, obviously. Um, he was a playboy, as we all know. But it was, it was, um, it was that was the seamless approach that uh, they had then and that they can have now if they're allowed. Yeah, if you take away the uh, encouragement of infamous cheating and the kind of littering the place with supermodels and being a bit kind of misogyny, probably far too strong, but 
a, a key player in that kind of tone and atmosphere around motorsport at the time, I'd say. You take that away, actually, it always came across like Briatore did know where his limitations were and played to his strengths and let the people who had different strengths, like engineering, running a racing team, get on with that bit really well. Whereas you talk about needing a team boss who can be that kind of human shield and present the right approach. Now, every time Bruno Famine's out in front of the press, things just seem to get more confusing for both him and everyone everyone who's talking to. It feels like he it really feels like he's having to defend something that probably is not really his fault and he doesn't necessarily even believe in wholeheartedly but he's just coming out with this vague kind of project phrasing to attempt to justify a plan that keeps changing will never actually come to fruition when it just looks from the outside like the team's falling apart. Bruno Faman is a is a terrific guy and we did a great job running the Peugeot sports car team is how I I remember him and but I just don't think he fits that role does he in Formula One. Um, could, could I ask you both who, you know, who would you think is the sort of figure who would who would take that role on now and, and do the do what they needed to do? Hmm. Our silence speaks volumes. It's, it's yeah. actually very, very it's, difficult it's tricky, isn't it? to come up with with that. And I almost feel like it, it maybe does need to be someone who's slightly outside of the the, the standard environs. I wouldn't go quite as far as a Briatore type who basically came into motorsport with no idea about it. That's probably a bit far. But there, there'll probably be somebody out there who doesn't have an F1 CV that that tell that says much, but that can do that. That's that's who I'd be looking for. So I think the main thing I'd ask for is for Renault to be very open-minded in terms of what they're looking at, because we've got this situation where you just get this little churn of a few team principles moving from team to team suddenly. It's gone a bit football manager in places, and I don't think that's ideal. So I think it needs some creative thinking, which is a very long non-answer from me. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that like, there was quite a lot of talk about Mattia Benotto being in the frame for it, but it just felt like he was the most obviously recently sacked team boss from somewhere. And when you've escaped the Ferrari environment, do you really want to go and do that? exact same thing in blue with smaller resources and a less competitive team hopefully for his own sanity hopefully not Zach Brown at McLaren is obviously not going to go anywhere but actually he is the kind of character who is probably closest to that Briatore pitch now it feels like at McLaren he's you know he's not he's not being he's not he's had his missteps certainly while running McLaren but right now he's allowed an environment where Andrea Stella can get on with turning that team around technically and it's really paying off yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good shout, actually, that kind of thing. Certainly, Matti Bonotto, accomplished as he is, certainly isn't that kind of profile figure. And this will be why they're taking their time over it, I imagine, because it's quite easy to say, oh, they haven't appointed anyone yet, but you'd rather they take their time and get it right. Certainly, as far as I know, the, the race team sort of working, well, the, the whole team, not just the race team, but at the factory as well, is working reasonably normally under basically technical director Matt Harmon is sort of at the helm on that side of things. Obviously, Bruno Fama uh, is sort of the interim team principal effectively, but they've got a little bit of time to think about it and look around and think, actually, what's the structure that works? But it needs to be somebody who can stop the <laughs> stop the Renault side getting in the way because it, it's baffling because Renault are investing a lot in making Alpine a big brand. You know, it's a brand that was defunct for quite a long time and then it was sort of brought back as really, really minor player as a brand and they really want it to build up and the F1 team is supposed to be central to that but it doesn't feel like they're making the most of it you mentioned Matt Harmon actually it's okay maybe not seeing it on track completely so far but he comes across very well and if there was a future where they kind of just let the race team let the end stone side with people like Harmon just get on with the job and don't have too much upheaval above them if famine's the person there for now great let him get on with it he you know like Damien said he has 
had great success in other parts of motorsport and maybe don't do a big hunt for a major new team boss but just back off a little bit um we've had after after rossi moved on that was when the that his time in charge of Alpine was when the most criticism and the most disruption seemed to be happening maybe actually just a bit of peace and quiet and let the race team do their jobs for a bit is the way forward for a while now just to look at it from another perspective um does it matter if this team isn't winning does it matter anymore? I mean, the, the way that Formula One's structured now, in the past, there was a, a real necessity to, to, to win because you need, you know, you need to score more prize money. And, you know, Formula One was um, a great way to lose a, a, a big fortune. Um, but now the way it's structured, it's actually, you know, teams want to be part of this because there's, there's, there's so much to be gained and, and it's a profitable enterprise. You know, does it, does it, do, do, do Renault, Alpine need to be seen to be winning? I think they need to be seen to be not going backwards, at least. If they're using it as a marketing tool for Alpine, I think the danger they face is looking at how a team like McLaren's progressing, looking at the possibility of Audi coming in. We don't, we don't know if Audi's going to make the right choices for what it's doing with Sauber yet, but that's that's a few years down the line. Looking at the jump Aston Martin was being able to take, okay, it's stagnating a bit now, but there's lots of teams that are moving forwards and have got clear reasons why they're going to keep moving forwards. And that's going to keep shuffling Alpine backwards unless it starts doing the same. Now, I agree, you don't have to be winning to be getting marketing value and stuff out of Formula 1 right now. Presence is enough. But if that presence becomes very, very mediocre and borderline embarrassing, we're not there yet with Alpine. It's a solid best-of-the-rest group-ish team. But it's it has to work hard to stay there, I think. And just being a stagnant F1 team... Okay, it's financially not a disaster these days with how the franchise model is working out. But reputationally, if you're a car brand trying to use F1 to sell your awesomeness, that's that's got to be a bad thing. Yeah, it's interesting. There's different perspectives you can take to it because as a business, as you say, Damien, it, it's fine. It's ticking over nicely. It's financially stable, etc. It's got a good high value. Obviously, they sold off 24% of it earlier this year to uh, a consortium and it has real value. You'd have thought if you're Renault, you need it to be doing a bit more than this to actually build your brand because that whole Alpine project, um, I listened to the presentation they did earlier this year over a couple of hours, which had about 10 minutes of F1 stuff and the rest was all the wider company. And obviously they've got ambitions about building the brand up in the US and loads of different markets. And I feel like they kind of need F1 to work for them in that regard. Otherwise, they almost might as well just sell it off. But it's an interesting question because it comes back to actually how much does Renault care? Because that's one of the things about Renault's involvement in Formula One historically. You know, in the previous time, you used to, have, you know, Carlos Ghosn wasn't very keen, was he? You know, every now and again, he'd stick his head up from a packing case that he, case that he was hiding in, he <laughs> owed onto a plane to say something a bit generally discouraging, and people would be very worried. And actually, that whole uncertainty played a part in the context of why Singapore happened. It didn't cause it; that was the responsibility of the race team. But that fear that they were going to pull the plug was part of the reason why that whole thing happened or why those involved felt it was justified, which, of course, it wasn't. So it is interesting that what Renault wants out of this, and there might be a point where they just think, you know what, we've got an asset, it's worth a bit. We could sell it off for a huge sum of money. It's, I think it's valued over a, over a billion in that recent Forbes valuation of teams. So they've already sold almost a quarter of it. But they could just create a lump sum of money to invest into the Alpine brand in other ways. Who knows? You know, sell it to an Andretti or someone like that who uh, might be interested. So it's it's an interesting question because, yeah, you can ask actually not just what does it need to do and it's, does Renault really want to 
care what it's going to do because that's been such a theme, hasn't it? I mean, the the Renault weirdness in Formula One, if you like, in terms of their commitment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, um, the 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 way it ended in the mid '80s, they came back very quickly as an engine supplier. They had that incredible period through the '90s of being the, the dominant engine supplier, but again, they weren't really getting the credit um, because Williams took the credit most of the time. Uh, and again, that happened with Red Bull uh, when they were winning with, with in the Vettel era. Um, so it, it really, the, the golden era really is, is kind of that, um, that time with Alonso. But you know, this team has spent an awful lot of time uh, in its existence actually being quite average as well, hasn't it? You know, it hasn't always been a, a, a top team. It's had these very high peaks, um, but they've been few and far between. Um, it's, it's, it's a, I, I came to the, the book uh, not through some great passion for this team. Have I, you got a book out? I have got a book out. Did, did, I, ah, did I tell very you? Interesting. Did I tell you? You didn't mention it. No, no. Re- Rebels of F1. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's, it's good. It's good, honestly. Um, <laughs> but I came to it as a, a, not through some sort of passion for this team, but as a, from a journalistic perspective, uh, as an interesting subject. And um, uh, I've grown very fond of the team through the process of writing the book um, because the people there, it's about the people there that are the, the key thing. They, and they're a great bunch. And I think this is, you know, this is still a great team that's, <laughs> that's just been brought down to some sort of average level. Um, something needs to change. And I, I, I wonder if it's going to have to be the ownership. I wonder if Renault, the only way it's actually going to happen is if when, if Renault do sell. Yeah, you could very well be right on that. And it is important to stress it is a great team because it's one of the few teams that's had multiple emergencies as a title-winning force. Very, very few actually have have kind of risen and fallen and risen again. You've got the great teams and then you've it's a weird one, Team Enstone, really, in terms of how it's worked. But it is, it's a kind of minor great F1 team. I put it that way, it, uh, you know, sort of eighth greatest team or something like that. I think I worked it out as so on night. It's, it's, it is very, very interesting in that regard. But yeah, I think you're right. They're going to have to find a slightly different path and one of those paths might be Renault not being involved. Either that or just deciding they want to be completely serious and really putting it under the control of whoever that will let it do what it needs to do and do what Red Bull do and what Mercedes do. So yeah, a lot to be done there, I think, and it's going to take some time for them to to get there. Matt, let's just move on to an Alpine-related 2024 F1 driver market issue, although really it's a 2025 driver market issue. We'll talk about it certainly through the course of next year, because Esteban Ocon at Alpine is in the last year of his deal. Obviously, he signed that long-term deal quite some time ago, which was quite a surprise, actually, at the time. But where do you think he could end up? How do you think he sees his Alpine future? It's a little bit like this kind of um, facts that Alpine's the team you can easily forget now. I feel like Alpine is the team you can forget in the drive market and it's drivers of the drivers you can forget as well. Other teams aren't going to be coming in for Esteban Ocon or Pierre Gasly in much of a hurry, which is not because they are doing anything wrong particularly. They are just not standing out to the same extent. Equally, there's not going to be a queue for an Alpine seat. So I think if Ocon wants to stay there, he's in a very strong position too because I just don't see lots of the drivers clamoring when there are other interesting options around Alpine at the moment is not looking like somewhere that's going to be getting the 2026 rules more right than anybody else or anything like that it's not looking like a team that's on a clear upward trajectory Ocon's an interesting one as well I still I really don't know where I rate him at all he was 
he had a, a good junior career. He has looked very good at certain times. He's a Grand Prix winner. He's he's an underrated racer. I, I think one well, one of our colleagues, possibly Josh Shuttle, the other day, was just pointing out how criminally overlooked Ocon is as a wheel to wheel racer. I guess possibly because so much of his wheel to wheel racing that he gets remembered for is um, involving crashing into teammates and having fallouts with them rather than actually successful wheel to wheel stuff. But no, he's he's feisty. He knows what he's doing. Um, in battle. Yeah, Suzuka last year is a good example. Austria this year in the sprint race in the Damp, he was a superb yeah. rear guard. Yeah, absolutely. He's he's definitely had his moments and both him and Gasly are very worthy and deserving F1 drivers and very inoffensive Grand Prix winners. I don't see either of them in a, as a world champion except in very favourable circumstances. I don't see a queue of other teams coming in for them, but I also don't see... the Alpine's got quite a big academy, but no one in there is standing out as a must-get-this-person-into-F1-as-soon-as-possible this sort of prospect. So this is like the... It's, in the game of musical chairs, it's kind of the chair that's still kind of there and open, but you might not notice it because it's like hidden behind a pillar or something. It's... Yeah, so technically this is a player in the in the next big drive market shuffle, but it doesn't feel like it's a very high profile one. D- dare I say that uh, the two of them could be turning into Fisichella and Verts in the in the yes. era. You know, it's just that's it. The team, you know, this is a plateaued team, two plateaued careers that aren't going very far, and it's not really a reflection on 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 either of them really in that sense. Um, and it's uh, it's just a bit unfortunate, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it's, it's a funny scenario for. Ocon, I did ask him about this in Singapore, about whether he was going to be pushing Alpine to get a new deal in place, a new long-term deal. And he said, well, I'm just going to see what happens. And I think that pretty much sums it up. To come back to Matt's metaphor, I think Ocon's sort of standing near that pillar thinking, well, I can jump back into this chair at any moment, but let's just hang around in case a better chair opens up. Because he's going to be one of those drivers who's in the group kind of behind the the elite group of drivers that people are interested in in terms of those who are out of contract for 25 you're going to be looking at your Charles Leclerc people like that Carlos Sainz probably ahead of him but Ocon will be thinking well you never know if somebody needs a driver I could find my way up the list a bit obviously you've got someone like Alex Albon is there as well so it's it's an interesting sort of situation to be in but you you can imagine he is frustrated because he could say do a new three-year deal with Alpine and that keeps him on the F1 grid. Great, that's fantastic. I mean, Esteban Ocon really shouldn't have made it to F1 at all in terms of the background he came from, the money he had. He made it to F1 through sheer ability and getting backing in through what he could do on track. He's a great story in that regard. So you wouldn't blame him for uh, being quite happy to accept, well, this could be a midfield future. But yeah, it's, it's a funny scenario to to be in. But I guess, Matt, Ocon wouldn't be the first person you'd be phoning up if you're looking for a driver. So he's, he's very good. He's a very, very capable driver, but he's not ever quite delivered on that sort of superstar hope that there was at one stage for him. No, not at all. And I don't think that's a, that's a bad thing or an indictment of him particularly. He's also a little bit unfortunate that we are in a really strong era at the moment. I really think you'll look back at this decade and go, okay, there were periods of dominance by Red Bull and Max Verstappen right now, but there were a lot of very good drivers around. And people like Ocon and Gasly and someone like Carlos Sainz as well, being in like the tier 1.5 after that is is great still. You know, they could have been title winners in a different era possibly, but they're just there are more exciting options around now and drivers who might actually end up in the same plateaued position in a year or two's time, but we don't know that yet. They haven't had the chance to have that shot and hang around a bit and not quite live up to expectations. So yeah, he's he has done some really great and promising and interesting things. I like the fact he's won a Grand Prix. I, I, it'd be a shame if he had left F1 without winning a Grand Prix at any point. But 
you know, maybe if Alpine really feels like it's just stagnating, maybe he's a left field pick for Audi. Maybe he looks yeah. at Williams and goes, oh, maybe Williams is actually going to get really get this right with its new ownership and new management. I'll, I'll hop into that gap there. It would probably do him a favour to to take a punt and move. Even a sideways move can pay off really well for a driver like that sometimes. But going back to that Giancarlo Fisichella, Alex Verts analogy, they were both really good drivers who were probably never, neither was ever going to be a world champion, neither was ever, ever turning out quite as exciting as they looked in their early days. Uh, they're probably a little bit underrated by history now, and it, it might be a shame if Ocon ended up in the same position, because I think he's po- probably slightly better than those two. Yeah, it's it's interesting, that lineup, actually. Inevitably, I was thinking about Benetton history. If you want to go even further back, it's almost a bit 1988, isn't it, Damien? Kind of Nanini, <laughs> yeah. Thierry and kind of both yes. good drivers, but not people you'd put money on winning a world championship in the future let's put it that way no exactly i think that's 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 the case i mean this this era matt it's really interesting you saying how strong this era is i think you're you're absolutely right and it, it reminds me a little bit of the, of the 70s in that sense that there are a lot of very very good grand prix drivers who weren't quite jackie stewart and nicky lauda but were you know were grand prix winners but of course in those days um you you could you could there was a bigger spread of constructors winning races uh, whereas now they you know most of them are frustrated and you know they'll be lucky if they get a, a couple of wins each um uh so it, it's it uh, and we're sort of waiting aren't we also for um and it's being pushed off further and further back for Alonso and Hamilton to unblock a couple <laughs> of good seats uh Audi to come in and create something really interesting with Sauber um and we're in this holding pattern it feels for for now where uh, drivers are on long-term deals at the teams they're at, um, but then it's all going to kick off in the middle of the decade. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny situation, really, because you say how hard it is for drivers to win races. It's a minor miracle Gasly and Ocon have got a win each, really. Yeah. Again, not through ability, because they're both capable of very, very good performances, but they were circumstantial wins insofar as they didn't have the car to win, the circumstances arose for it to happen, and they they pulled it off and pulled it off very, very well. It's often forgotten that you know Monza, could have been won by others. Gasly didn't didn't take the restart. Best place to win, actually. Lance Stroll was the one who was in the best uh, position to have won had he had a a better start and better first restart lap. But yeah, it's it'll be frustrating for both of them. I mean, Gasly's had half a season in a top car, admittedly, but Ocon will be looking at thinking, what do I have to do to actually get in a, a top car? You know, Mercedes ultimately thought he wouldn't have been a, a big step forward in terms of net performance compared to someone like Valtteri Bottas. But Valtteri Bottas has also sat there, sit, sat on, what, 10 wins or something like that. It's very interesting, that Mercedes uh, c- comparison. I do think that's done Ocon a bit of damage, the fact that Mercedes had the chance. Similarly, uh, Pascal Valin's career going the way it did and ex- exiting F1, the fact that both those guys had a shot at being a major part of Mercedes, Mercedes saw enough to go, actually, no, our long-term future is George Russell instead, and we'll stick with Valtteri Bottas in the meantime. I don't. I think that has harmed harm perceptions but I also have faith in, in Mercedes having enough data to make that decision it being it being the right one um, but you've also you just reminded me of the circumstances in which I followed that Hungary race that Ocon won so I wasn't working that weekend I was at a family wedding and the circumstances are such my, my daughter was having a lunchtime nap so I was in the hotel room while she had a nap and I was stuck in the bathroom so I didn't make any light or noise following the race on my laptop initially and I saw the circumstances that for that crazy start and stuff and I think Ocon was he was pretty much at the front from then onwards, wasn't he? And I had to then go and rejoin the wedding. My daughter woke up and was like, 
I can't think who's going to win that, but surely it's not going to be Ocon with all these other people behind him who could come through and all these circumstances that could unfold. Can't believe it's still going to be Ocon there when I checked the result in four hours' time. And it actually, it actually was. There were lots of ways he could have lost that race. Yes, it was a fortuitous, crazy circumstances one, but when he got anywhere near the front, he really made it happen on a day when he had every chance to to not make it happen. Yeah, and, and thinking of Gasly's win at Monza, do you, do you remember how he sat on the podium after the podium ceremony, yeah. just trying to soak it all in? Because I mean, partly because he couldn't believe he'd won in in, in that car, but also I just wonder whether he thought this might not ever happen again. I'm going to just enjoy yeah. this. It was a lovely moment, which we get so rarely these days. Yeah, I think a good human moments. And they're both drivers who are certainly capable. They've showed it. They've shown they're capable of winning Grand Prix on their day. And I think they can. Again, I'm not sure that either of them are drivers you'd bet on to win a world championship, nailing it weekend after weekend all season. But there's not many drivers who can do that. That's a very, very elite group. So yeah, I'm interested to see what, uh, what Ocon decides to do. But I do think chances are, yeah, it's going to be stay at Alpine or maybe hop onto another upwardly mobile team if there's one interested in the services. Just on one more last point on Ocon as well. What I also love about him is he's a spiky character who um, <laughs> upsets people and, uh, you know, he, he doesn't care about upsetting people. I guess that maybe that comes from Ed from his tough um, route through the sport. You know, he's he's had to ruffle feathers along the way and um, he's, he's, he's tough, isn't he? He's a tough guy but, in, in that sense. Yeah, he's got real edge to him, Ocon. He's a, he kind of has a very pleasant way about him and everything and sort of quiet and sense but yeah he has got that real real edge there's a bit of a street fighter in there if you want to put it that way and um you know there's elements of that in Gasly as well in a, in a different way they're both sort of quite they're quite contrasting characters and obviously those two have had their differences in the past they've sort of kept a lid on it at Alpine but there's a simmering battle going on there in terms of who can assert themselves and I'd say neither of them has really taken complete control of that team this year they can both point to spells where yeah I've been the stronger one here so that's that's quite an interesting little subplot so yeah I think both of them are interesting characters and I'd like to see them having a shot regularly in Gazi's case a second shot at the front to see how they shake out because they're they're very fine drivers well, let's have a look at the one outstanding seat in F1 for 2024 Williams. Logan Sargent's the incumbent, but a crashing qualifying meant another weekend of unfulfilled promise at Suzuka. So, Damien, would you re-sign him or would you be looking elsewhere? I'd be looking elsewhere, I think, unfortunately. I, uh, I, I like the guy and I, I was impressed with how he presented himself when he came in, you know, um, kind of painted as the, the the pay driver and all that kind of stuff. And um, I, I think he's, you know, he's had a had a shot Um whether he deserved it or not, I don't know. But he's 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 just made too many mistakes, hasn't he? I think I think it's probably given the quality. We, we, we're you know, as Matt said earlier, we got we're in a really good era in terms of quality of driver. Uh, there's no there's no weak weak. There shouldn't be any weak drivers in Formula One, and I think um, Williams can do better. How about you, Matt? It wasn't it wasn't a crazy idea to give him that drive in the circumstances, Williams. We're in. There was there was no there was no need. You knew what you needed to know about Nicholas Latifi. He'd become an inoffensive Grand Prix driver, but he wasn't going any further, and he was some way off Alex Albon. Uh, Oscar Piastri had been a great shout for Williams, and would really help drive it forward. But that opportunity disappeared. Once once that's off the table, Sargent was in the Williams system anyway. He was having a decently interesting season in Formula Two, worth a go, definitely. But 
I used to I used to very much champion junior drivers and and be kind of outraged that certain people from uh, Formula Three Thousand, as it was then, hadn't got F one chance and think how awful F one was. But actually, you're still angry about Boris Derishaburg not getting into F one. Yeah, yeah, scandal, Sahali Yari, all that kind of thing. Um, I've lost my thread. But now, well, that's, now that's, fair, that's fair enough when I'm talking about yeah. very random F3000 drivers. He was the first one that popped into my head. <laughs> yeah, that did go a long way down the grid, didn't it? Um, Jamie Davis. I do think F1 is quite meritocratic these days. As much as it get criticised for paid drivers and that kind of thing, I think a lot of drivers who didn't make the cut in F1 having looked good in junior categories were people F1 looked at seriously and had enough data on from the simulator or test drives further back to go, actually, no, this person wouldn't cut it in F1. Off they go to something else. And so I don't think there's too many absolute travesties out there. But you don't ever really get to see how good a driver is at Formula 1 until they get into Formula 1. You know, we had a lot, so many cases over the years, Stoffel van Dorn, Jan Magnussen, so many who looked incredible. And then in the circumstance of their F1 careers, couldn't make it happen. Equally, you've had enough drivers who looked decent, but not superstar at junior level, who actually come in and been significantly more impressive than than you'd have thought. I mean, okay, Sergio Perez is having a bad season next to Max Verstappen, but this guy came through British Formula 3 Class B and has ended up in, in the dominant champion F1 team 20 odd years on. There's There's a lot. There's a lot going on in, in his career that you wouldn't have expected in the junior category, certainly. So it was worth Williams taking a punt on Sargent and seeing where his trajectory was going to go. But we now know where that trajectory is going. It's a series of crashes. It's it's weekend after weekend where he does a few sectors on Albon's pace or some practice laps on Albon's pace. And then he's 20th on the grid again. And there's not there's not a sign of that changing. That pattern is, is being baked in rather than getting any better. And he's not offering any evidence that more time is going to solve that. So... For, for all parties, it's better for Williams to look elsewhere now and, and ideally, given the evidence in front of them, um, give Red Bull a call and ask if they can borrow Liam Lawson because he's someone who is, on the evidence we've seen so far, getting to F1 and stepping up another gear and showing he can really handle F1. Well, that, that's where I was about to jump in, Matt, uh, on that point exactly. I mean, um, I'm, I'm personally uh, outraged, outraged that Alpha Tori of stuck with Ricardo for next year uh, instead of <laughs> Lawson. Just because, you know, it's supposed to be a team that brings on young drivers with the idea of uh, helping them develop, uh, hopefully to promote them to the senior team. And uh, Lawson has done everything right in terms of um, the chance he's been landed because of Ricardo's injury. Um, I thought his drive at Suzuka was superb to, yeah, to beat Sonoda the way he did. Um the points in Singapore at the toughest circuit of them uh, on the calendar in terms of you know, both physically and mentally. Um, you know, what more does he, had he had, could he do? Clearly, you know, they decided before he got in the car that when Ricardo's fit, he's back in that car next year for whatever reason. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure he's putting on a brave face, but he must be so frustrated that he's missed out. Um, and, we, you know, a, 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 a Liam Lawson. Alex Alban team next year. That's a pretty decent lineup um, for for a Williams uh, that's that's going through its own sort of phoenix phase at the moment. Um, it's an obvious answer, isn't it? The thing I like about what Lawson has done is in this chance he's come in and shown he can put together weekends, which is what Sargent hasn't done. I wouldn't necessarily say I think Liam Lawson's the fastest driver that's ever come into Formula One over a single. Like, he's quick enough, but you know he's he, he's not got that Charles Leclerc, Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen wow speed, should we say? But not many drivers do. But I really like the way he works through methodically, puts things together, strings together the weekends, doing that so quickly after being pitched in at the deep end is properly impressive, and that's why 
we know if he was in at Williams, he'd be a good solid support act to Alex Albon at worst, which so far, unfortunately, Logan Sargent hasn't been. Yeah, we, we should be careful not to get too excited about Liam Lawson and you know that he's the he's the the Johnny Come Lately guy in fashion. Therefore, we have to talk him up. But um, I think all I'm saying is and the other thing. The interesting thing is, of course, is he didn't have a stellar junior career at all by any means. You know, he was always there or thereabouts in most of the formulas he was in. But yeah, he wasn't a standout Stoffel Van Dorn, for example. Um, but it, you really find out about a driver when they get into a Grand Prix car, don't you? And um, on the evidence we've got in front of us, he can do the job. Therefore, I think he just deserves to be in a seat next year. And as there's only one, give him the Williams. And Albon's another good example of that kind of trend of a driver getting to F1 and just showing another element to themselves. You know, Albon's junior career wasn't bad, um, but most of it didn't live up to all the excitement that was around him in karting. And then he gets to what was then Toro Rosso. Before long, he's, he's earned this Red Bull shot on merit. He's rebuilt his career at Williams very impressively. And Lawson just feels like he's got that kind of air about him, that he's going to be someone who sensibly works their way forward. And like, like you both say, he hasn't been super fast, actually, in F1 so far. He, he built his, he started out in that uh, mid-weekend arrival at Zandvoort. He wasn't on the pace, as you, as you would expect. He didn't, like, shatter expectations by suddenly coming in and being really quick. But he's made things happen. And then, like you say, very impressive. He finished in front of Tsunoda. There were some circumstances involved around pit timing and stuff. But to even be close enough to Tsunoda for that to happen was better than Nick DeVries had been managing. It was He's really impressed me so far. And I, it's not like a DeVries situation where you're judging it off one race and, and getting really excited, even though that was the one race where that car was going to be super quick. We've got a decent body of evidence across a set of circuits, a car that's been upgraded along the way, different demands, uh, tracks that have suited it, tracks that haven't. He's done a really good job at all of them. So it'd be a really strong Williams signing. Williams could do that with a, with a bit of confidence. And I think two people of that sort of age and determination profile and with that much to prove is exactly the sort of lineup that Williams needs in this phase in its rebuilding when it's really starting to gather some momentum. And I have no doubt that Red Bull would be very interested in that sort of deal if Williams wants to take him. Williams, obviously, they might want certain things about how long they have him for. You'd probably want to have a good chance of having him for a couple of years because I'd be concerned about the possibility of Albon leaving in 25 because I think that's very, very possible, in fact, because he's doing a very good job there and he is a driver who plenty of other teams would be interested in. So, yeah, it's, it's a shame for Logan Sargent. I said at the start of the season I could see him going either way because I felt there was the raw material in there, but could it coalesce into something? And ultimately, what we 15 races in, it just hasn't as yet. So, yeah, it's a tough job, Formula One, ultimately. And Liam Lawson has made the most of a less good opportunity than the one that Logan Sargent's had with the full season. Let's put it that way. So, therefore, he has to be ahead of him, ahead of him in the queue, doesn't he? He does. Uh, you have to feel sorry for Logan Sargent. As a human being, uh, you can kind of see what he's going through with the mistakes that are coming and that his, you know, the head-in-the-hands look has become very familiar. And it's it's it must be so galling to have spent all this time and all this effort through your childhood trying to get to your goal. You get there and it turns you know, it goes wrong for you so, so early on. It's, it's, uh, I think it's heartbreaking and we, you know, we've seen it time and time again. We'll see it many times again in the future, but um, that's why we love the sport, isn't it? That human element. Yeah. I think it's important not to, not to come across as cruel in this as well. Like when um, Sergeant 
had his tangle with Bottas during the race at Suzuka, having had that terrible qualifying crash as well. Yeah, I, I don't know if you can make a kind of collective like oh noise in a Slack channel, but it felt like our discussion of it uh, at the race that that morning was along those lines. Like he should be doing better than that. He's not a good fit for that seat anymore. On a human level, he's a young guy. He's worked hard to get there. It's it's really sad to see it not working out for anybody, but. It's Formula One. There's 20 seats. There's X thousand racing drivers out there. This is what you this this possibility of getting there and then failing and dropping back out again. This is what you sign up for when you set that as your goal. So, yeah, sad, but you know it's not a charity. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a brutal world, elite sports, and yeah, it'd be great if things do come together. There's still time. I think Williams are going to be patient on this one and give him to the end of the season. So you never know. He might string together three, four, five good weekends. It'd be nice if he did, but I just lacking the, the expectation that's going to happen just based on what we've seen. Just going to have to try and prove himself. He's still in the car. That's the main thing. So he's got a little bit more time to try and make his case. But Lawson is looking very, very appealing right now for Williams. Well, thanks very much to Matt and to Damien Smith for your insight. Do buy a copy of Benetton Rebels of Formula One. If that sounds like something you'd like to read, it's a really, really good book, so I would thoroughly recommend it. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's plenty to read there. Listen to some of our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories, the Race F1 Tech Show with the legend that is Gary Anderson on MotoGP pod with Matt Beer, Formula E as well, we do IndyCar, and also take a look at our YouTube channel. Well, we've got a few more days until we're heading off to Qatar, so stay with us for everything you need to know in the world of Formula One. The Athletic.